Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thanks for listening to the program today, and I would love to get feedback from you. And so if you would like to ask a question or would like to interact with me via email, my email address is Sean, that's S-E-A-N, at E-B-C dash online.org. You can also visit my website, seancole.net, where you can find my contact information there as far as Facebook and Twitter. This is going to be an interesting podcast. I may have to cut it in half and do two, but I want to jump right into the fray because I believe I have a dog in this fight. Uh, Back last year, James White and Leighton Flowers engaged in a debate on Romans chapter 9, and it really generated a lot of discussion in podcasts and in blogs and in Facebook and Twitter. And then in August, I responded to that podcast. And from that, Leighton Flowers and I began to interact on each other's podcast. I've been on his podcast, Soteriology 101, about three or four times. He's interacted with my podcast. We've communicated through Twitter and through phone calls. And so I feel like I have a relationship with Leighton. I respect him. I think he's a godly man. I believe he's doing a great job, and, and I understand where he's coming from. Recently, Rich Pierce Uh, the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries with Dr. James White, did a three-part podcast series where he basically uh, tore a exegetical method. And I was fascinated by Rich's um, treatment of that because I think he did a very good job of exposing um, how Leighton came to... um, to the text and the differences between Dr. White and between Leighton Flowers. And I don't want to so much comment on Rich Pierce's podcast. I encourage you to go listen to those. But what I'd like to do is I would like to enter into this conversation because um, I believe I understand Leighton Flowers' position. I've asked him the same questions multiple times. We've had interactions, and I want to engage with his written material. Now, he may respond to this podcast um, on his podcast, and I welcome him to do that, and we may interact down the road. But I got these directly off of his website, uh, his commentary on Romans 8, 28-39, and his commentary on Romans 9, line by line. And so what I want to do is I want to challenge his assertions. Because there are some major assertions that Leighton Flowers lays forth as assertions from the text that I do not believe he has proven from the text. I believe he's imported information that may be pertinent and does have good teaching into the text to support an assertion that's not in the text. And I hope to bring those out as we go through. And so I'm going to go through his material. We're going to read the passage. I'm going to address these assertions. And basically, over and over again, you may hear me say the same thing over and over again, you've got to prove it. Prove, the, the, prove your assertion from this text. Don't import things from another text. Don't import things from another context. Insert, insert those into the text. Look at the text at face value, lexically, grammatically, exegetically, contextually look at the text and say, ask yourself the question, has an assertion been made that is there in the text or can be proved by the text? Or is it imported into the text from another area of scripture to actually make a point? 
So without any further ado, let's just dive right in. And so what I want to do is I want to read Romans 8, 28 through 39, a very familiar passage of Scripture. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Let's just stop right there. Leighton Flowers basically gives a Greek meaning of that word to know. We know, and yes, he translates that accurately. It's a perfect active indicative. And he makes the argument that it means to observe and perceive. And I agree with him. But basically what he's saying is, his argument is, is that the perfect tense there is used to show that Paul observed how God dealt with the Old Testament saints in providing for them, in calling them, in foreknowing them. And so what he does is he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And he really focuses on that whole idea that know there is used to emphasize Paul's observation, Paul's knowledge, Paul's confidence in how God dealt with the Old Testament saints, and because of how God dealt with the Old Testament saints, it gives Paul confidence in the future in the writing of the book of Romans to lay forth his argument. But here's the issue. Paul is saying, this is, I'm going to quote from him, Paul is saying that we know from observation of God's past dealings with those who love him that he has a mysterious way of working things out for the greatest good. By observing the stories of the saints that have gone before us, those called to accomplish his redemptive purposes, we can rest in knowledge of this truth. So what he's saying here is that God's dealing with those in the past, those that have gone before us, the Old Testament stories, and he mentions Abraham and Moses and David. When we look at how God dealt with them and how God mysteriously called them to his redemptive purposes, then we can be confident that God works out all things for good. Here's the problem. In theory, yes, I believe that we can look at the stories of the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, we look, can look at the stories of Abraham. We can look at the stories of Moses. We can look at the stories of David, and we can see God's faithfulness. We can see God's purposes being worked out. Absolutely. But does Paul, anywhere in this text in Romans, draw our attention to say, Paul, I'm observing past stories from Old Testament narratives. And let me give you an example. Let's talk about Abraham and let me give you a few few examples. Let's talk about Moses and give you a few examples. Nowhere in the text do we see Paul doing that. And Paul often does that when he appeals to us and calls us to look back to the Old Testament. He will often reference specific stories. But right here, nowhere in the text, anywhere, does that word we know draw us to look back at God's dealings with Old Testament patriarchs or Old Testament characters to find out how he called them to his redemptive purpose. As a matter of fact, what the grammar tells us in verse 28 is it says, we know that for those who love, present tense, not loved God, present tense, all things work, present tense, together for good, for those who are 
called present tense according to his purpose. This is a present tense reality. Paul is talking about the called, his audience. Those who have been called to salvation, those who are being um, involved in God's redemptive plan by loving Him, God presently is working out all things for good. Now, does it mean that God didn't work out all things for good for Old Testament saints? No, it doesn't mean that. It's just Paul doesn't teach that here in this passage. And when we talk about those being called, it almost always means those that are effectually called. Now, I know Leighton would probably disagree with me and say that it doesn't teach effectual calling. But almost every time you see the word calling in the Bible, it's not just this invitation. It's not just a mere invitation. It's always tied to God's salvific purposes. To the church, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And later on down in the passage in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, the wisdom of God. Jude chapter 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Almost every time this calling language is used in the New Testament, it's always equated with God's sovereignty, God's calling, God's keeping. And so it's not just a mere invitation. And so what we have to understand from this passage of Scripture is that in the present, we have the confidence, Paul is saying, And yes, we know it by observation and we know it from Scripture. It's not just this intuitive knowledge, as Leighton Flowers would argue, that it's not intuitive. It's it's based upon fact. But we know that God presently is working out all things for good for those who've been effectually called into salvation. Nowhere is there in this text an importation of looking to Old Testament saints and their stories to see God's faithfulness. And now here's where his definition, he he comes to that, he has to grapple with the word foreknew. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. What Leighton is going to do is he's going to give an interpretation here that I don't think I've ever seen before. Now, maybe N.T. Wright has this, and maybe it's, an, I don't want to say it's novel or, or, it's, or it's wrong. It's just that traditionally, historically, when you read the commentaries, when you read the arguments, when you look at how scholars and pastors and historians have understood this word for no throughout the centuries, it really only comes down to the two options. Is he talking about conditional faith, the foreseen faith view of Arminianism, or is he talking about for loving or for ordaining the Calvinist view? Those are really the only two options that have, that have really historically people have been grappling with. And so what he's done is he's come up with, and I don't know if it's original with him or N.T. Wright, but here's how he understands those whom he foreknew. Let me tell you what he says. Here, the Apostle Paul clearly reveals his focus on the saints of old, those whom he foreknew. Paul is seeking to provide evidence of his claim in verse 28 by reflecting on God's faithfulness to his chosen nation, those beloved who were known before. 
He's basically saying that to know before simply means to know before, that God knew, God had special knowledge, God had special acting with those who He knew beforehand, and the those whom God knew beforehand were Old Testament saints. So contextually, what Leighton Flowers here is saying is that those whom God foreknew is not talking in salvific terms about His audience or about Christians, but He's simply making a statement that God knew previously in the past had special workings and knowledge and blessings upon the Old Testament saints. But here's the issue. He's got to prove that. He's got to prove that with the actual wording, prognosco, the word foreknow, and he's also got to prove that God is talking about Old Testament saints contextually in this passage, nowhere to be found. And he goes on to quote John Piper. Obviously, we all know John Piper is a strong Calvinist. And, and basically, John, lists the, or John Piper lists the two options for interpreting this verse. And I agree with John Piper. Because historically, this is the only two ways you can come to grips with contextually, exegetically, syntactically, what Paul is arguing. And John Piper says, option one, God foresaw our self-determined faith. We remain the decisive cause of our salvation. God responds to our decision to believe. That's Arminianism. That's the foreseen faith. That's conditional election. Or option two, God chose us, not on the basis of foreseen faith, but on the basis of nothing in us. He called us, and the call itself creates the faith for which it calls. That's the unconditional election view. That's the Calvinistic view. And I think John Piper adequately summarizes that you really can only come to two conclusions based upon that word for no. But what Leighton is going to say is that that word in 2 Peter 3.17 means to know beforehand, Acts 26, 4 through 5, they've known beforehand. And so he says this, quote, Clearly, this word can be understood simply as to know someone or something in the past, as in those previously known, i.e., the saints of old. So if Paul means to use the word prognosco in this sense, then he is simply saying, Because we have seen how God worked all things together for the good of those whom he knew before, we know that he will do the same for those who love and are called by him now. Now, theologically, I have no problem with that statement. Yes, we have seen how God has worked all things in the past for Old Testament saints. And by observing those Old Testament stories and looking at those Old Testament examples, we can have the confidence in the present that it's the same God. The same God of the Old Testament that we have now, if He did those things in the past, we have the confidence that He's going to do those things now for those who love Him and are called by His name. But that's not what Paul's teaching with that word, Prognosco. He's got to prove that that word means contextually, exegetically, syntactically, that God knew the Old Testament saints and God's talking about his faithfulness of Old Testament saints and Paul's drawing our attention to Old Testament saints and which saints is he talking about, which stories is he talking about. And so basically, he's simply saying, those of the past who God has known and faithfully cared for throughout generations. So this is somewhat of a new interpretation. And this is why sometimes we as Calvinists struggle with Leighton Flowers and trying to pigeonhole him and to understand where he's coming from because he's not arguing from an Arminian viewpoint. He flat out isn't. Don't call Leighton Flowers an Arminian. He's not. He is a traditional Southern Baptist whom I think has been influenced by N.T. Wright, Herschel Hobbes, and modern-day Southern Baptist scholars. And so he's not 
arguing for the foreseen conditional election view, i.e. Arminianism, and he's not arguing for the unconditional sovereign view, i.e. Calvinism. He's opting for a third view that says, really, what, God, what Paul is talking about is that God knew these Old Testament saints in the past, God worked in their lives, God worked out all good for them, and based upon what we can see God doing with these Old Testament saints that he knew beforehand, we can have the confidence now to know that God can do the same for us. But I, again, I say, prove it. Prove that that's what the word foreknow means. Show me an example of where Paul draws our attention to Old Testament saints. Show me an example of where that word is used syntactically tied to anything in the context to Old Testament saints. Because the word foreknow, what does it mean? Lexically, what, is it, what does the word mean? Both lexically, meaning how it's used in the actual wording in the text based upon its semantic domain, that's something that maybe get a little bit technical, but when you do word studies, you don't want to just pull up the Strong's and say, okay, here's what the word means and give all the definitions from Strong's. No, you want to look at the semantic domain, meaning how is that word used in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, among different writers, in Paul contextually, because there may be an actual word in the Greek language that, that, that John may use it differently then Paul uses it based upon context and purpose. So you can't just throw out a definition there and say, okay, here's what the word means. You have to look at lexically, contextually, historically, grammatically, based upon its semantic domain. And so when you go to the lexicons, you don't just like look for the entry. You have to read the entire lexicon and look at all the entries of how it was used. But almost every lexicon that you look at in relation to this passage so within the semantic domain of Paul's usage of this word and in relationship to contextually to Romans chapter 8, the Launida, or Lunida, depending on how you pronounce it, a very reputable lexicon, says that this word foreknow means those whom he had chosen beforehand, he had already decided should become like his son. So the Lunida a very reputable lexicon defines the word foreknow as to choose or to select or to decide beforehand. The BDAG, which is probably the granddaddy of all lexicons, basically it means to select in advance, to choose beforehand. So it's using the idea of not just God knowing beforehand, but it's intrinsically tied to God choosing. The exegetical dictionary of the New Testament says of this word prognosco, it is in relation, it says, it, 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 let me quote it here, is used in the New Testament, first of all, of the divine foreknowledge in relation to which the idea of election is always present. So three of your top exegetical lexicons in relation to the semantic domain usage of Paul's word prognosco in Romans chapter 8 all talk about foreknowing as in choosing or electing. Now, what Leighton Flowers will do is say, I agree with you, Sean. God did choose those people. God did choose those Old Testament saints. God did choose Abraham for a purpose. And he will say, the purpose is not for individual salvation. The purpose is that God chose them to carry the message, the lineage of Christ to the world that eventually ends up in salvation. 
So it's not an election unto salvation. It's an election or a foreknowing to a purpose, the noble cause, which we're going to talk about as we get further here. But again, I'm going to ask the question, does this text mention any Old Testament saint? Do you see Abraham? Do you see David? Do you see Moses? And does the direct object, those, it says, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The those there, the direct object of the, of the electing and the predestinating and the, and the foreknowing, Leighton would say the those there are the Old Testament believers that God knew in advance, that God worked with. But the question is here, is there a qualifier tied to the word those? Does Paul say those Old Testament saints that God knew beforehand, he also predestined? He doesn't put a qualifier. So the text in and of itself does not give the exact identity of the those whom God foreknew or God predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. But as you continue to read through Paul's text to the end, you know that there's a golden chain of redemption that it has to be that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And Paul goes on to say that that's the elect who can bring any charge against us. And so in Contextually, Paul's talking about his audience, the Roman Christians, including himself and by extension, us who are Christians. So that those who've been foreknown, that those that have been predestined are not Old Testament saints per se. It is us, the elect of God, those whom God has justified, saving faith. And so what... Leighton Flowers is going to say here in relation to this verse is that Paul, quote, Paul is reminding his readers that God will redeem the suffering and evil for a good purpose in their lives, just as he had done in the lives of those known and loved throughout previous generations. It is these who God previously knew, the Israelites, who loved God in the past, who were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ as to make the way for his coming. So he says that those who were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ does not necessarily mean us. It was those Old Testament saints that God foreknew that he predestined them to become conformed to the image of Christ. And this being conformed to the image of Christ was to make a way for his coming. Now, were these saints predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ? Yes. How does God do it? Well, you know, obviously they're in heaven now. They're glorified. But Paul does not tie this teaching to God foreknowing Old Testament saints. And so what I really want to say here is I think he's gotten this from N.T. Wright. Now, he may have come up with this on his own, and he found N.T. Wright to corroborate his own findings here. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't really matter who came up with what. The point is, is that Leighton is putting forth an interpretation of foreknowledge or foreknowing that does not fall into the Arminian camp. It does not fall into the Calvinistic camp. It falls into this camp of God simply knew Old Testament saints in the past. And so what he's saying here is, let me quote again, clearly Paul is reflecting 
on God's redemptive purpose being accomplished through those who love God in former generations. That redemptive purpose included the bringing of the Messiah into the world through Israel, or more specifically, those Israelites set apart for that noble purpose. This was God's predestined plan of redemption, which was brought to pass through those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, he, he switches the verbs here. He says that this... That, that those who were called according to his purpose, those who love God, that's the Old Testament saints. The Old Testament saints were the ones who loved God. They are the ones who were called, and they were called to the purpose. And what was the purpose that God called them to? Well, this is where he inserts the noble purpose. Notice what he says. The purpose that God called them to was the plan of redemption that was predestined. So God chose these Old Testament saints, he knew them in advance, and he predestined for them to carry the plan, the noble cause of redemption, so that people could be saved through their message, through their lineage, eventually through the Messiah. So he's arguing that this is all Old Testament, and that the plan, according to the plan, is not purposely now, that God is working out all things according to his plan now, but that the plan that God had, the predestined plan, was the noble purpose of God using Old Testament saints that he knew beforehand to bring the plan of redemption. Now notice that it's a predestined plan, not a people. Nowhere in this text does it ever say that God foreknew decisions, that God foreknew actions, or that God predestined a plan. All the direct objects of the verb that God is the action of are people. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, those, those, those. It never says God predestined a plan. It never says God chose these Old Testament saints to bring the plan. Now, obviously, that's true. God chose the Old Testament saints to bring the plan through. But that's not in this text. Paul's not arguing that. Paul's not using that as the basis for his argument here. Now, there may be other places where Paul appeals to God's usage of Old Testament saints and Old Testament means to bring about redemption, but that's foreign to Romans chapter 8. It's not here. Now, one of the things that he will argue here is that proof, he'll say, okay, here's the proof that God is talking about Old Testament saints. In the golden chain of redemption, glorified is in an aorist tense. It's in past tense. And, And obviously, lexically, Exegetically, verse 30, those whom he predestined, past tense. He also called, past tense. Those whom he called, he also justified, past tense. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, past tense. And and many scholars have been a little baffled by why did Paul use a past tense verb to describe a future reality? So, for example, when Paul was writing this, could he say that he's been glorified? No, because glorification is a future reality that happens when the resurrection of the body, when you get your new glorified body and you live forever in the new heavens and the new earth in your final state of redemption in Christ with the glorified body. And that has not happened yet in time. But in Paul's mind, many people look at this as a prophetic past, is maybe the way they would use it, is that in Paul's mind, because it's a golden chain of redemption, it's as if it's already done. It's a done deal. In God's mind, because your salvation, you were foreknown, 
You were foreloved, you were predestined, you were called, you were justified. And then it it comes to pass that because God has started this golden chain from start to finish, you will be glorified. Now, Leighton would say the reason that glorified is in the past is not because it's in the golden chain of redemption. He's talking about those Old Testament saints. Those Old Testament saints are the only ones that can say that they can be glorified because Paul can't say we've been glorified yet. So obviously, the golden chain of redemption of those who were predestined, those who were called, those who were justified, could be talking about us. But ultimately, the reason he uses past tense for glorified is because he's talking about those Old Testament saints that died and are now in heaven, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Joshua, those, those Old Testament saints. But here's the issue. Is there not another place in Paul's writing where he gives an example of a future reality that's already true now? And I can think very clearly of that. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul makes the statement. He says this in verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul says we are already seated in the heavenlies. Question. Are we already seated in the heavenlies? Have we, are we in heaven? Can anybody here on planet earth say, hey, I'm seated in heaven. I, I've received my inheritance. I'm there in heaven. No, obviously not. But in Paul's mind, he's saying, because God has sovereignly brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life, it's as if it's a reality in God's mind because he's brought your salvation to complete perfection from first to last, from election all the way to glorification. So Paul can say, right now we're seated in the heavenlies, even though we're not physically there yet, in God's mind we're there because he saved us from first to last. It's the same concept here that Paul is using when he's talking about glorified in the past tense. In God's mind, it's a done deal. We're already glorified. And so for for Leighton to say this is all about Old Testament saints that are already glorified, again, he's got to prove this. He's got to show from the text that the golden chain of redemption is not speaking about believers right now and what God has done in predestining and in calling and in justifying. He's got to show us that that is talking about Old Testament saints. And then he goes on to Hebrews 9.15 to give a proof that it is talking about Old Testament saints. So Hebrews 9.15, a corroborating verse. Let's see if it corroborates with what Paul's saying. And for this reason, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant so that those having been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now what he says here is that Those having been called to receive the promise is obviously talking about those under the first covenant. That when when the writer of Hebrews is talking about the death of Christ, that the the reason that, that those who are called is not his current audience of the Hebrews... The Hebrew Christians, the Hebrew, the Jewish Christians there in Hebrew in, in the book of Hebrews, but what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that those who were called to the promise of the inheritance were the Old Testament saints. That's a misunderstanding of that verse. All throughout the book of Hebrews, yes, the writer is making a comparison to the Old Testament system, 
But right here, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, meaning that he's not saying that his argument is there is not that these Old Testament saints were called to salvation. He's saying that that Old Testament covenant did not accomplish salvation in the fullest sense because a guilt could not a guilty conscience could not be taken away and because christ is the mediator that those who've been called receive the internal inheritance those who who are being called to salvation right now and so i think there's even a misinterpretation of hebrews there trying to trying to read into this this whole idea that the calling that the writer of hebrews is using and the calling here that the paul is using in romans chapter 8 is dealing specifically with old testament saints now, let me just keep moving through his argument here. Let's move into Romans chapter 9. So it's interesting, the, the, the build-up that he has here, which is a very interesting interpretation, is that those whom God foreknew simply means God knew beforehand the Old Testament saints who loved him. And God worked in their life, and God had a plan for them, and God used them to bring about the redemption of Christ through the lineage and through the word and through the prophets. And, and so it has really nothing to do with us right now in the sense that the, the individual election, unconditional election unto salvation. Now, I'm sure Leighton would say it's very much related to salvation because the Old Testament saints were called, were chosen, were predestined to bring the message of salvation. And because of their obedience in doing so, we now have the option or the opportunity to be able to to be saved because of what they did. And so let's go into Romans chapter 9. And I wanted to deal with that first because I don't think a lot of people have dealt or or, or really dealt with Leighton's viewpoint there on Romans chapter 8 on this whole idea of foreknowledge. Um, And again, it shows how he's got to prove that this is talking about Old Testament saints. Now, let's move into Romans chapter 9. And I'm not going to cover all the ground that Rich Pierce or even James White did. I want to address some very specific questions that I have for Leighton. And again, I want to ask, can you prove this from the text of Scripture? So let's move into Romans chapter 9. Now, I've already dealt with Romans chapter 9 on a previous podcast, and I interacted with Leighton Flower, so I don't want to go necessarily verse by verse through Romans chapter 9, but I do want to, again, interact with the assertions that Leighton is making in regards to Romans chapter 9. So I encourage you to go read or listen to that podcast. I think it's called um, Exegesis of Romans chapter 9. It's back in August of, of last year. So let's just read... Uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promise to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. Now, what is going on here is that Paul is going to address the issue of his sorrow in seeing that Ethnic Jews are not coming to faith in Christ. And so that's the issue. 
And the question then becomes, all right, why are they not coming to Christ? Why has God's word perceivedly failed? Because what Paul's doing is he's looking around and he's, he's, he's looking at the objection, okay? That's great, Paul. Romans chapter 8, you've talked about salvation. You've talked about God's golden chain of redemption. You've talked about God's eternal security. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Okay, if that's true and I look around me, why are there ethnic Jews not coming to faith in Christ? As a matter of fact, being obstinately against Christ. And so... Paul goes on to say, verse 6, It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. How you interpret verse 6 is the linchpin or the hinge upon this whole issue. And again, both Leighton Flowers and James White and Rich Pierce, you'll hear them all say, this is the verse that, that matters. And I agree with what he's saying here. But... What he's got to prove here is that the reason why God's word has not failed is because God has chosen the Old Testament saints and the Jews now to carry the word of God as the noble cause. Okay, so what he's got to prove is that, and so the answer, let's get you to give the bottom line answer. I'm trying to get ahead of myself. The answer, I believe, why God's word has not failed and why some Jews aren't trusting Christ is because of sovereign election. Bottom line, God has chosen some to be saved and others he's passed over in his sovereign right and mercy to do so. That's what I believe Paul is answering from the text. Leighton Flowers would say, no, that's not the issue. What the issue is, is that God has, is, is choosing, God is electing to, to, to um, choose these Jews, these Israelites, to carry the word, to, for the noble task of carrying the word and bringing the Messiah and bringing the message of salvation to the world. He's not talking about the individual election of Jacob and Esau to salvation. He's talking about God's election of some Israelites for the noble purpose of carrying the gospel and others not for the noble purpose of carrying the gospel. And here's the issue. If this whole issue was about God's choice to choose some to carry the message and others not to carry the message, and that's what the whole issue is about, is, is who's going to carry the message, that some were chosen for it and others weren't, then why is Paul so distraught? Why is Paul so upset? It's an issue of eternal salvation. It's an issue of those being passed over as vessels of wrath. Now, what he's going to do here is he's going to tell us that verses 4 and 5, what Paul says there is, this is the mandate given by God to the Jews to be chosen to give the noble purpose of bringing the message to the world. Now, in this passage of Scripture, in verses 4 and 5, do we see the mandate by God prescribed to the Israelites to bring the message of the gospel to the world. Is Paul here saying, listen, 
what God chose you to do was for the noble task, the noble cause of bringing the message to the world. No, Paul is basically making an argument that as Israelites, they had privileges. They had blessings. They had all of the blessings of the Old Testament. And it would seem like because they had all those blessings, they should be the first to receive Christ and understand him as the Messiah. But they're not. And so what he's saying then is that in verses 9 through 13, God's plan to bring the word through Israel. And so what he's going to do is he's going to talk about um, not all children of Abraham or his offspring. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's going to talk about this, this whole issue of, of the two, the two, um, the two Sarah and Hagar. And obviously, yes, he's talking about Isaac and Ishmael. But then what he does is, is he, he brings in Galatians chapter 4, 21 through 25, into this issue to, to make an analogy. And so what he's basically saying here is that, let me just read verbatim. The apostle is taking one step further by not only to seek to prove his claims about the descendants of, of, of Abraham are true, but even more specifically show that all descents of Isaac are not, number one, guaranteed salvation on the basis, basis that they are a descendant. And number two, this is his big issue, that they are, were not chosen for the noble purpose of bringing the word to the rest of the world. This is what he's got to prove. Basically, he's got to prove it. Here's what he says. God's choice of Jacob, the lesser of the two brothers, in age and physical prowess, was for the noble purpose of bringing the word to the rest of the world. Prove it. That's what I'm just saying. Prove it. God's choice. What he's saying here is that when it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, what he's saying there is this does not refer to the individual election or predestination or sovereignty of God in choosing one brother or the other for salvation. It's that God chose Jacob to bring the word to the rest of the world while Esau was not chosen to bring the word to the rest of the world. Prove it. Where in the text does it say anywhere that either one of these boys was chosen to bring the message? As a matter of fact, what it says here in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good and bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but the one who, uh, of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Okay. Where in that text does it say that God chose Jacob to the noble purpose of bringing the word to the rest of the world while Esau was passed over from bringing the word to the rest of the world? Is he talking about election to the noble purpose or is he talking about God's election unto salvation answering the question, why not all Israel or Israel? Because even out of the same offspring, out of, out of Jacob, I mean, out of, out of Isaac's loins, Jacob and Esau, both out of those loins, one was chosen for salvation, one was not. That's why not all Israel saved. The answer to the question is not some that Jacob was chosen for the noble cause to bring the, the message to the rest of the world and Esau was not. The issue is about salvation because You've got to take the wording there, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. 
He says the fulfillment of God's word was never relied upon the faithfulness or morality of the individuals chosen to carry that out. He also goes back to Romans chapter 3, 3 through 4, and says that's another passage that talks about the noble cause. So let's go back to Romans 3 and see what it says. What if some were unfaithful? Oh, let's go back to verse 2. Much in, let's go back to verse 1. <laughs> what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Okay, he's saying that. Yes, the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God. They were entrusted with the message. They were entrusted with God's word. And some were unfaithful in that. Does that nullify the faithfulness of God? Okay, does that passage specifically and explicitly teach that because some Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God and did not remain faithful in that, is that talking about God choosing some to bring the noble purpose of the oracles of God to the world and bypassing others and not choosing them for that? Or is that really talking about the fact that ancient Israel was unfaithful? God had given them the law at Sinai. God had given them the covenant. And over time, through the kings, First and Second Kings and Chronicles, you see the wickedness of them. And they finally, because of their unfaithfulness, they were kicked out and took into exile. And, and basically we're saying that because God gave them His Word and they were unfaithful, does that mean that God's Word is not faithful? And the answer is no. It, it doesn't depend upon the faithfulness or the obedience of God's people. It depends upon the faithful covenant love of God. And so again, we've got to have an established... We have an assertion. Here's the assertion. The assertion goes like this. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, and the choosing of Jacob over Esau, here's the assertion, all those together mean that God is choosing some Israelites for the noble purpose of bringing the message of the gospel to the world, and thus also the lineage of Christ, while others he is not. That's the assertion that is made. And again, it's got to be proven. He says this, talking about Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He said, even direct descendants of Isaac himself, Edom, are not chosen for the noble purposes that God elected Israel. Thus one should not assume that the apposition of direct descendants to God's word is an indication of failure. What he's saying is, is that, okay, even, okay, he's saying that, I hope I understand him correctly, that Isaac's descendants, you've got Esau, Edom, and you've got Jacob. Jacob was chosen for the noble purpose that God elected him to bring the message. And, but you shouldn't assume that just because Esau wasn't chosen for that noble purpose, it doesn't mean that somehow Esau's not saved. And I would say that Leighton Flowers would probably argue that Esau was saved. He would go back to Genesis and say, there's evidence of God's blessing on him. There's evidence of, of him being saved. And so obviously what we see from the Old Testament is that Esau was passed over for, for, for being chosen to bring the message for the noble task, but it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. He still was saved. But the question then becomes, and I think Rich Pierce brought this up very well, was 
you have to go with the, and James White too, you have to go with the apostolic interpretation of what Paul meant. What does Paul specifically say? Because here's a hermeneutical principle. Here's a very key hermeneutical principle. When a New Testament writer is commenting on Old Testament events under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the full counsel of God's Word, in the fullness of the history of redemption, you always go with the New Testament interpretation. You always go with the New Testament commentary. You go with what the New Testament writer is interpreting that to mean. You don't go back to the event and draw all your conclusions from the event. You draw your conclusions from the, uh, how the New Testament writer, under the, interpretation of, or under the inspiration of Scripture, interprets that. And how does Paul interpret that Malachi passage, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated? He's applying it as individuals chosen for salvation. Again, it goes back to the question, has God's word failed? Why are some Israelites, why are some ethnic Jews not being saved? And Paul's answer is because it was never God's intention in the first place to save all Israelites. Let me give you an example. God chose Jacob for salvation. He passed over Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's how Paul interprets it. He doesn't give any indication that Esau was saved. How do you deal with Esau I hated? And it wasn't based upon Esau's actions. It wasn't based upon something that Esau did. This decision was made before the boys were even born. God made the decision to set his electing love upon Jacob and pass over Esau, not because he foresaw something that either boy would do, because both boys were pretty rotten. As a matter of fact, Jacob's probably more rotten than Esau. It was because God's choice in election. And he would say, Esau was blessed and protected by God, Deuteronomy 23. So the hatred was either one, conditioned upon the Edomites' attack of Israel, or two, in reference to God's selection of Jacob and his lineage for the noble purpose over Esau and his lineage. He gives two options that aren't in the text. His answer to God hating Esau was Nationally, it wasn't Esau actually individually. It was that God is responding to the Edomites' attack upon Israel. Does this text say anything about the Edomite attack upon Israel, or is it very clear that God is making the choice of individuals before they're even born? And number two, he says, if that's, if that's, why, if that's not the reason why God hated Esau, then it must be number two, God hated Esau because... He chose Jacob and his lineage for the noble purpose over Esau. Okay, well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm going to love Jacob and give him the noble purpose, but I'm going to hate Esau and not give him the noble purpose. That, that doesn't really quite make sense. It's not about one being chosen for the noble purpose of carrying the message in another. This is talking about salvation. Paul has in all Romans 8 talked about God's golden chain of redemption. He's talked about salvation. It's very salvific terms. And then the, the objection comes, well, okay, what about, how come not all Israel's being saved? Okay, answer. God chooses individuals unconditionally before the foundation of the earth to be saved and others he passes over. Point in case, Jacob and Esau. Nowhere in the text does it say one was chosen for the noble cause and the other was passed over. This is all about election. Now, let's just keep going down here. Here's what he says. There is no, because we, we get to the unrighteous, we get to the objector, okay? So if you're going to object, 
Okay, so, so this is a hard statement. Let's, let's, I'm trying to follow his train of thought here as I'm going through this, so bear with me. I'm kind of doing this on the fly. Okay, if God sovereignly chooses some for salvation, whether they've done good or bad before birth, according to his purpose of election, not because of works, but simply because it's God's sovereign right to do so, would not the natural objection be, that's not fair? Who gives God the right to choose one over the other? That's not fair. God's making a choice. God's making a a discrimination, and that's not fair to God to do so. It's not fair that Jacob would be loved and Esau would be hated. God, that's not fair for you to make that election unto salvation. Okay? And that's where the objector comes in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. The question is right there in front of us. God, so, so Paul's assuming that the objection, there, 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 there's going to be injustice. Somebody's going to stand up and say, Paul, wait a minute, that's unfair, that's unjust. God doesn't have the right to do that. And it's, it's in light of God's choosing some for salvation and others not. But here's how Leighton takes the objection. Quote, his answer to the objection is there is no unrighteousness with God for choosing some descendants for a noble cause and not others, nor it is unjust to condemn a descendant of Abraham who stands in opposition to the word of God. Question, is this the objection? Is this the objection? Is, is the objector standing up and saying, now, wait a minute, God, you're unfair. Why would you choose Jacob for the noble cause over Esau for the noble cause? It doesn't seem fair that Jacob would have the chance to have the lineage and have the blessing. And then Esau, even though he's salvifically saved, he just didn't get a chance to carry it. That's just not fair, God. That's not the objection that Paul is, 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 um, is expecting. Why would, the, why would any Israelite object to not being chosen to bring the word? This is not the issue of being chosen from the noble task that the person is objecting to. That's read into the text. The the objection is to God's sovereign right to choose. And how do we know that? Because Paul goes on to give illustration after illustration. Nowhere in this text is it ever the objection to the noble cause, that God is choosing some Israelites over other Israelites, not for salvation, but for just the noble cause of carrying the gospel. Why is Paul so distressed? Why are people freaking out that Jews aren't coming to faith? Why, is people, why are people so upset that God loved Jacob and not loved Esau? Why all these objections if it's just over the noble cause? Well, then <laughs> Paul goes on to say in verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is where exegetically, I think, Leighton Flowers gets it very, very wrong. And I will just read to you verbatim what he says. Now, now look at the text carefully. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The question is, what is the it referring to? What does it not, what, what does it not depend upon? And let's see how Leighton Flowers answers that. I will give you a direct quote. Quote, It refers to the fulfillment of God's promise to bring His word despite Israel's unfaithfulness going back to Romans 3, 3 3-4. So, the noble cause of bringing the word to the world does not depend upon human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
Now, contextually, grammatically, syntactically, he's got to prove that the it refers to the promise of God's noble or the noble cause. Because contextually, grammatically, it refers to God's purpose of election. Go back and see what it says. Verse 11, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of Him who works, but because of Him who calls. Right there, God says, listen, or Paul says, listen, God's purpose of election is upon God's sovereign calling, not upon working. And then down here he says, so then it. Well, what's the it? Well, look at the antecedent. God's sovereign calling. God's purpose of election. God's purpose of election. God's sovereign calling does not depend upon human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Nowhere in that text does the it refer to the noble cause. And and basically, here's what he says. The promise depends upon a merciful God, not on the faithfulness, quote, willing and running of Abraham or his descendants. Abraham willed and ran in the flesh to produce a son through Hagar, whom Paul used symbolically to represent the covenant of law of works of Galatians 4.24. Okay, contextually prove it that when Paul says it does not depend upon human will or exertion, that Paul is talking about Abraham willing or running. Has he even brought Abraham in? I mean, he talked about Abraham earlier. But now in context, he's talking about Jacob and Esau, two sons from the one father, and then he's going on to talk about Pharaoh. So if anything, you've got to bring Pharaoh into it or you've got to bring Jacob and Esau into it. But how does Abraham show up in here? How, how would the objector look and say, okay, Paul, I'm tracking with you. Here's the objection. Um, the objection is, you know, it's not fair for God to choose Jacob over Esau for the noble cause. And I understand what you're saying, Paul, because you're going to bring an example of God having mercy on who he has to have mercy, and you're going to bring Pharaoh into the example here. And so I'm really going to look at this and say, you brought Pharaoh in, you brought God's sovereign election of Jacob and Esau, and so now I'm going to just automatically assume that you're talking about Abraham running and willing, and that that's what has failed. God's purpose in bringing the, the, the noble cause is because Abraham tried to produce that through the flesh. Now, is it true? Did Abraham try to produce that through the the flesh? Yes. You go back to Genesis and you read that. That's true. But is that what Paul's argument is here? Is that contextually what he's talking about? His view is that the willing and running is about Abraham and not about what Paul actually says and that God's purpose of choosing Jacob was for salvation. Again, he doesn't mention Abraham willing or running. What he's saying here is that God's sovereign purpose in having mercy on who he wants to have mercy, having compassion on who he wants to have compassion, i.e. his sovereign election, does not depend upon human will. It does not depend upon foreseen faith, looking down and looking at a person's works. It doesn't uh, condition upon foreseen faith, repentance. It's, it's unconditional. And Paul even corroborates that when he says back there, before the two boys had done anything good or bad, before they were born. So contextually, it's talking about individual salvation to uh, not, not this noble cause. Now, his question then is, why is God just to harden unfaithful Israelites to accomplish his promise in bringing the word? So what he's going to do here is he's going to say, not really deal much with Pharaoh being hardened, but say that Pharaoh is an example of God hardening Jews to bring about the noble purpose. 
And so he's going to import in here this whole idea that there's hardened, judicially hardened Israelites. But the question then becomes, okay, well, why is Pharaoh mentioned? Okay, why is Pharaoh mentioned? He's not a hardened Jew. What Paul is doing here is he's using an example of how God can sovereignly harden someone for his own purposes. I think he imports, Leighton imports the judicial hardening of Jews into this passage about Pharaoh. When he talks about, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, here's what he says. Note, those judicially hardened or cut off are not born in this condition, but have grown hardened over years of rebellion. He quotes Acts 28, 27. They're cut off for their unbelief. And the hope of the apostles is that they may be grafted in and saved. That may be true, but that's not what Paul's argument here is with Pharaoh. Paul's talking about Pharaoh. Number one, a couple things we understand about Pharaoh. He is talking about an individual, not a nation. Even though Pharaoh was the representative of Egypt, he's talking about Pharaoh being hardened, being raised up. What happened to Pharaoh? He died in the flood as an example of God's judgment. So it's an individual, and it's also talking about a Gentile individual. This has nothing to do with the judicial hardening of Jews in the context of Pharaoh. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Because think about Paul's argument here. Paul has made the argument. Okay, let's go all the way back to Romans 8. God has a golden chain of redemption. He has from first to last sovereignly ordained, predestined, foreloved, called, justified, glorified. From first to last, God has saved a people. And that's amazing. That's wonderful. God works out all things according to the purpose of His will. Okay, Paul, if God works all things out according to the purpose of His will, and the Jews have all these privileges in the Old Testament, they have the oracles of God, then how come in major droves we see the Jews resisting and not coming to faith in Christ? It looks like God's word has failed. Paul's answer, no, God's not word has failed. It was not God's intention from the beginning to save every single Israelite. As a matter of fact, God chooses whom He wants to choose. And I'll give you a couple examples. Let me give you an example of Jacob and Esau from the same man Isaac. Jacob was loved. Esau was hated. This has nothing to do with the noble cause of carrying the gospel. This has everything to do with salvation and God's purpose of election stands. Okay, the objector says, well, that's not fair. That, that's not fair. Why would God choose one for salvation and not the other? And Paul says, listen, it's not unfair because God has the sovereign right. God has the sovereign right to have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, to have compassion on whom he has compassion. You can't control God. You can't tell God who he can choose and who he can't choose. God has the choice to do that. And as a matter of fact, this choice that God has, it doesn't depend upon human will. It doesn't depend upon our freedom. As a matter of fact, God is the one that's free to choose and whom he wants to save. Let me give you another example. Let me give you Pharaoh. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And as a matter of fact, he's the one that God hardened, God raised up. God gave Pharaoh over to a hardened state so that God may be glorified. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay, now this has all been in discussion about God's sovereign choice to choose some for salvation and others not for salvation. But Leighton assumes that the objector here is a hardened Jew who's upset that God did not choose him for the noble cause of bringing about the gospel. 
And so he looks at the objector as, as a hardened Jew. Whereas when you look at that, you have to say, okay, verse 19, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you, O man? I don't think he's talking about necessarily a hardened Jew. I think he's talking about a person that has a problem, whether Jew or Gentile, with God's sovereign right as potter to do what he wants with the clay that he's created. And that's the objection. That's the objection. And here's the thing. Paul gives the example. Okay, so Paul's given many examples here. Jacob and Esau, Pharaoh. Now he's going to talk about a lump of clay. Okay, so he's used examples from a Gentile. He's used examples of Jews, Jacob and Esau. And now he's going to use an example of clay. And so I think he's used these three examples to get it through our heads that, listen, no matter which way you look at it, God has the sovereign right to do what God wants to do. And objection after objection. And so let's see what happens here. In verse um, 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make one or make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I don't know how you can get so hard here. I mean, how this is so hard. He says a lump of clay, hardened clay represents Israel who has grown callous in rebellion and who are now being remolded into two kinds of vessels. Okay, here's what Leighton Flowers says. The two types of vessels. One, those unfaithful Israelites remolded by means of signs from the incarnate Messiah himself to bring the word. Those unfaithful Israelites remolded by means of judicial hardening to accomplish the noble purpose of bringing redemption on the cross and grafting of the, of the Gentiles. So what he's saying is, again, it goes back to the noble purpose. This hardened lump of clay does not represent the whole mass of humanity, but it represents hardened Israel who's grown callous and they're being unfaithful and they're being remolded to, to bring the noble cause. And what he says here is that judicial hardening is woefully misunderstood in what brought him out of Calvinism. But here's something that we've got to deal with. It's very clear. I mean, here's what I would say about Romans 9. It's a difficult passage to accept, but it's not that difficult to understand. I don't think it's that difficult really to understand Paul's argument. That's, that's not the issue with Romans 9. The issue is it's hard to accept. Because listen to what Paul says in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience, patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I don't know how you deal with that other than it's talking about not a noble cause, not carrying the noble cause. It's talking about eternal destruction. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Okay, let's just take Paul's argument. Out of the same lump, the same father, if you will, Isaac, the same lump of clay Isaac, had two sons, one that was prepared for mercy and one that was prepared for wrath. 
Pharaoh, out of the same lump of humanity, Pharaoh was prepared for wrath while Moses was prepared for mercy. Nowadays, humanity, there are only two options out of all humanity. Those whom God has prepared for wrath and destruction and those who have been prepared beforehand for glory. Okay, so you have to deal with the question, is Paul talking about carrying the noble cause? Is he talking about salvation? And when was this prepared? When was God's sovereign choice of, of the destiny of people determined? It was determined before the creation of the world. He has the sovereign right to show mercy on whom he wants to show mercy. He's given example after example. And the objector keeps objecting. And Paul finally says, listen, who are you, old man, to talk back to God? Here's the bottom line. God's the potter. God has sovereign right. God can do what he wants to do. Now, Leighton Flowers will say, yeah, I agree with you. God has the right to do what he wants to do, but I know what God wants to do. God wants to save all people, and God gives the option to all people, and people aren't born spiritually dead and totally unable. People become calloused over time, and they refuse God by their own free will. And the same thing here is with judicial hardening. And so the question then becomes, okay, um, we have this whole idea of judicial hardening. What does that mean? And the question is, okay, if God is judicially hardening Pharaoh and God is judicially hardening Israel, let's just, let's just grant it. I grant it. God is judicially hardening Pharaoh. And I believe later on, as we get to Romans chapter 11, God is judicially hardening Israel. But the real question then becomes, is the judicial hardening temporary or permanent? That's another question that's got to be asked. Is it reversible? So let's just ask the question. If he's talking about a hardened Jew here, even though it's imported into Pharaoh, or in the lump of clay is a hardened Jew, does it seem likely from Paul's argument about being prepared beforehand for destruction that one can actually go from being a vessel of mercy or being a vessel of wrath to becoming a vessel of mercy? Can that happen? It sounds like it was predetermined. It sounds like God's sovereign choice was made. And so I don't think there's the slightest hint that the vessels of wrath may become vessels of mercy. So I don't think that it is reversible. Paul argues that the vessels of mercy are going to appreciate God's mercy when they see his just anger inflicted upon the vessels of wrath. Now, those are some issues that we've got to deal with in Romans chapter 9. And I know we're going along on time, but I want to go into Romans 11 and bring this thing to a close. Romans 11 was left out of the discussion. But Leighton Flowers kept going to Romans 11, and I think it is pertinent to the issue, and I don't have any problems with him going to Romans 11 because I think Romans 9 to 11 are a unit of thought. But Romans 11, verse um, 6, verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, 
a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Okay. Paul here says there's a remnant by grace. Isn't that the same thing of answering his question? Paul, how come not all Israel is Israel? How come not all Israelites are saved? Well, because it's not God's intention from the very beginning to save all Israel. There's a remnant saved by grace, i.e. God sovereignly chose some Israelites to be saved, others he passed over. I gave you example after example, Jacob and Esau, Pharaoh, lumps of clay. And if it was by works, then it wouldn't be sovereign election. It's got to be by grace. But then the next objection comes in in verse 7. Okay, if that's true, then it looks like Israel basically failed to, to find salvation. And Paul says, no, that, that's not true. Again, there's two classes of people. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. The rest were hardened. Now, if we've got two, we've got two groups of people here, the elect and the hardened. And if you go back to Romans chapter 9, you see the elect and the hardened. Who were the elect? Vessels prepared beforehand for mercy and glory. Who were the hardened? Just like Pharaoh, just like that lump of clay. Vessels prepared beforehand for destruction. And so there's this whole idea of judicial hardening, but I don't think that the judicial hardening, you, you can go from being judicially hardened as, as, as unelect to an elect. And so Paul's going to quote from Deuteronomy 29.4, Isaiah 29.6, Psalm 69. Again, the big question is, is judicial hardening temporary or permanent? Do we ever find evidence that those hardened became unhardened and believed? Um, and so the question then is, is judicial hardening in conflict with total depravity? Because what Leighton Flowers would say is that we're not born hardened. We get calloused and hardened over time. And so if we're born totally unable and we're, we're born um, spiritually, um, spiritually dead in the sense that we are unable to respond to God's plea for salvation, then why would God have to judicially harden sinners? Because it seems like they would already be born in a state of being hardened. Why would God have to harden them more? And that's a discussion for another time because I think we're running out of time. But I think that there's some questions that have got to be asked. And I think the, the major point of distinction between the two camps, Rich Pierce, Dr. White, myself, Calvinists, and Leighton Flowers, traditional Southern Baptist, is th probably some big things. Number one, and we've looked at this, the big thing is how do you interpret foreknow in Romans chapter 8? Number two, how do you deal with glorified in the past tense in the golden chain of redemption? Number three, how do you deal or deal with, with Leighton Flower's assertion that the noble cause is all throughout Romans 9 and what election is? And number four, how do you deal with judicial hardening being imported into Pharaoh and is it irreversible? Those are the real issues. And I think sometimes we can talk past each other and not really understand each other. And I think Leighton would appreciate somebody understanding his viewpoint. 
Again, he's not an Arminian. He's not a foreseen faith guy. This is a, a view that's, um, and I think, the, let me just put my two cents in here. I think the reason why people felt like he did not exegete the text and that he did not go through Romans 9 line by line the way Dr. White did is because Leighton has this viewpoint and these assertions about the noble cause and judicial hardening. And I think he was arguing topically for those points as opposed to line by line exegetically. And so I think in the debate, Dr. White was going through Romans 9 with, with I think, the correct interpretation. Leighton Flowers was laying forth more of a topical theological understanding of the noble cause and judicial hardening and drawing from all these different sources to build his case as opposed to going through the text. And I don't necessarily fault him for that. I'm not going to say it's bad exegesis. I'm not going to say it's bad hermeneutics. I'm just going to say that when you compare side by side what Dr. White did and what James White, I mean, what, what Leighton Flowers did, um, James White did more of a historical, hermeneutical, grammatical, historical, syntactical, lexical, um, balanced treatment of the text. And I'm going to say this as kindly as I can because I, I do love Leighton Flowers and, and, and we've had interactions, but I believe that he has come to Romans chapters 8 and 9 with unfounded assertions that he's imported into the text that are foreign to the text and he's trying so hard to prove his case that I think, let me just say this. When I was listening to Rich Pierce and then when I heard Leighton Flowers' rebuttal to it, I kept thinking, Leighton, please, the more that you present your case, the more that you're falling right into line to what Rich was arguing for. And so I would just say this, um, you know, Leighton has a viewpoint. And it's a different viewpoint. And I know he feels um, that he's not getting heard, that he's not being understood, that we're talking past each other. And I think, you know, maybe Rich, Rich Pierce gave some pot shots to him. Um, and, I, I, you know, I understand that whole issue. But I do say that, you know, if Leighton is going to continue to bring these assertions to Romans 9 and keep arguing for it and, and, and over and over again on his podcast, he's got to prove some of these assertions directly from the text. And I think that's where the issue is. And I think that's where J Dr. White was trying to push him towards. And I just don't think there, there was a, um, a connect between, between Leighton Flowers and, and Dr. White on, on actually the issue at hand. And so um, when, and that's very important in a debate. And I'm not a debater. I'm not an apologist. But I do know the original languages. I do preach every Sunday. I, I almost have a doctorate uh, from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I, you know, I... I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I am qualified to understand these things. There is a proper way to go about doing exegesis. And you've got to be very careful that you let the text of Scripture speak for itself. And here's the point. If you're going to make assertions from the text, grand assertions, bold assertions, assertions that you're going to keep putting forth, then you need to be able to back those up syntactically, grammatically, historically, theologically, all the different ways that you do that. And if you can't do that, if you can't substantiate the assertions you're making from the text, then you may need to go back and reevaluate if the assertion you're making is a true assertion. You may need to go reevaluate 
You may need to go do some more study. You may need to be, be challenged. You may need to receive some correction. Because none of us is perfect. None of us is a perfect exegete. I've gotten some things wrong at times, and I think you need to be teachable. But I think that if you're going to make assertions over and over again, regardless of who it is, if it's Leighton Flowers or whoever, I'm just saying that if you're going to make assertions that the text says these things, and you're finding that all these people are saying, wait a minute, where are you coming up with that? Where are these assertions coming from? I think you need to go back and evaluate your assertions with the text and be teachable and say, do I have solid basis for these assertions? And if you feel that you do, and you can exegetically and lexically and syntactically and grammatically and historically and contextually and theologically show that your assertions are coming from the text, then I think we can, we can agree to disagree on some minor theological points. The point is, is we've got to be very careful and precise in how we do this. Now, with this being said, I don't want to get in hot water with Dr. White or with Rich Pierce or with Leighton Flowers. I, I really, just as a bystander standing back, I look at this and I listen to Rich Pierce with fascination. Um, I listen to Leighton Flowers with fascination. I, I, I see where the lines aren't being connected, where the dots aren't crossing. And, and I just wanted to jump into this because of my um, relationship with Leighton Flowers and, 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 and having interacted with this. And I think that there needs to be a third party to come in and say, wait a minute, you know, you address these things, you address these things. Let's, let's go back and address the real issues that he brought up. And so that's where I've challenged Leighton Flowers on that. And if he wants to have me on a, on a podcast or if he, if, you know, whatever, I'm, I'm open to that. Um, and I think it's important for us to interact on these things. Um, again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I hope this has been beneficial. It's a, it was just a, something I felt like I needed to get into the fray and do um, and to give these thoughts. And so I really appreciate you listening. Again, you can email me at sean at ebc-online.org or visit my website at seancole.net. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Have a great day in the Lord. We'll talk to you later. This is Understanding Christianity with Pastor Sean Cole.